Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling more confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TVD Conference. The theme this season is the real future of work. What's really going on with the world of work under the hood? What's changing? What's not being said? We're checking assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I spoke with an amazing array of people from Dan Pink to Harvard University professors, TikTok superstars, data specialists and generational experts, all live on Twitter spaces. What follows is a recording of that space, so it's more conference call than podcast booth. Sponsors are incredibly important to me, and I am proud to say Ecology are back, and they planted a tree for every live listener we had. We're over 15,000 trees in the TBD forest now, and you can start planting your own over at ecology.com. That's spelled E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com. Workplace by Meta also came on board this season. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways and whatever you bring to work to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very, very cool indeed. Make sure you never miss a moment of Mouthwash by signing up for the newsletter over at mouthwashshow.com. And you can also get a text alert over at mouthwash.norby.live. Very handy for busy people. Check out all those links in the description too. As with all good podcasts, please share it on a network you trust and leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash. Fresh chat that leaves you feeling more confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD Conference. The conference attendees say is like Ted without the bullshit. We're flipping it up this season. We're live Tuesdays through Thursdays. You get the same amount of mouthwash, don't worry. We're just spreading it over the middle of the week. It's a reflection of the times and changing world of work, which is our theme for this uh, season of mouthwash, the real future of work. This season, I'm exploring what's working, what's not. We're checking assumptions, checking in on ourselves, and also the future. I want to know what's really going on under the surface, where it's all going and how we're going to get there. I have an amazing cohort of people joining me this season, from multiple best-selling authors like Dan Pink to brand new startups who are creating new models for the metaverse. I'm also discussing the future of experts, uh, future work with experts from Harvard University, behavioral psychologists to TikTok superstars. You can check out the full lineup and previous episodes of Mouthwash over at mouthwashshow.com. I'm also proud to say that we are sponsored again this season, this time by the, the clever folks over at Workplace by Meta. Whatever you bring to work to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways and to make your place of work a great place to work. Uh, just visit workplace.com forward slash human and you'll get all of the details. Workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very cool indeed. Um, the folks at Ecology are also back and they're planting a tree for every live listener in the TBD forest. We're over 15,000 trees strong at the moment. So if you're looking to reduce your all your business's carbon footprint, just head over to ecology.com and start planting your forest. And they spell it a bit differently. So it's E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com. So that's E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com. Um, now for the live listeners, it's time to share the space. Just click the round plus, uh, blue plus button in the bottom right hand side of your screen and tell the world you found something good. Everyone that you get into the space means another tree in the world. And I think you'll agree that's no bad thing right now. Um, if you want to ask a question, just DM me or use the, hash, uh, the hashtag at the top of the screen, mouthwash show or one word, and we'll pick it up from there. Um, OK, on to tonight's guest. Joining me all the way from London is Dr. Pavel Adran, uh, economist by trade. Dr. Um, Hal is uh, head of EMEA Research at Indeed, the world's biggest job site, uh, where he and the team focuses on everything from the labour market trends, wages, pensions, to the impact of technology on jobs, as well as a lot more besides. He's a very busy bunny and his work uh, and findings are widely covered by the likes of Bloomberg to the FT, amongst others. Uh, he's also a research fellow at Oxford University. And Dr. Pavel is a member of the Research Advisory Board at Open for Business. Uh, before joining Indeed, he worked in various roles, including risk management at Goldman Sachs for about a decade. Welcome to Mouthwash, Pavel. Uh, what did I miss out of your bio? Hello, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. Um... Well, you uh, mentioned I've done a lot of different things, uh, but maybe one thing that you missed was that uh, I was born in Poland and I've lived there. I've also lived in the UAE, Bahrain. I did part of my degree in France and I then worked in the US and the UK. So my background is uh, even more international than uh, my bio suggested. Damn, that's very international indeed. Um, what was the first thing you thought of when you woke up today? Uh, gosh, um, uh, today, well, today I woke up a little later than usual, around seven thirty, and uh, 
the first thing I thought about was that uh, I had missed the uh, release of the UK inflation data, which had come out at seven in the morning. Um, so that, that was the first thing that crossed my mind. Uh, now, it wasn't wasn't really a big deal professionally because I wasn't going to uh, trade on the news or, or write any live articles. But um, there was an expectation that the figures would come out at a very high level. And indeed, they did. So uh, CPI inflation came out at a staggering 9%. Uh, which was the highest in 40 years. So the last time that inflation was this high in the UK was when Margaret Thatcher was uh, prime minister. So um, uh, that's what I what I thought of when I got up this morning. God, yes, it's not been a fun day for a lot of Brits uh, today, that's for sure. Um, okay, this season is all about the future of work. Uh, tell us, what's your current situation when it comes to work? Are you back at the office or have you always been remote? Um, I'm working remotely right now and I go into the office about once a month. Uh, before the pandemic, I uh, worked remotely about one to two days a week um, and spent the rest of the week in the office. Um, so it's been quite a change, uh, though I'm not completely new to remote work. My team is, is global. It's a distributed team. So we always used to do a lot of Zoom calls and the such even before the pandemic. Mm. Um, have you, you said you went in one day a week. Have you changed how you use that day? Is it just for sort of like social catch ups or is it sort of more focused work, creative work? How are you using your time there? That's, that's the, that's the first time I think this season I've heard of a person only going in once. Um, I have definitely changed how I use that day. Uh, the first time that I went in, I set up uh, a meeting, kind of a brainstorming slash collaboration meeting with one of my colleagues, and that was really useful. But then I ended up spending the rest of the day on Zoom calls because uh, people just put time in my diary and uh, and I, I had to take those meetings. So it was a kind of a mix. So that, that collaborative collaborative meeting was definitely very useful. The the Zoom calls, uh, you know, are things that I could have done at home. So what I have done since is really try to plan that day. And, and really, uh, right now, I'm trying to make that a mix of collaboration and socializing, um, and definitely making sure that I check who will actually be in the office uh, that day, because uh, depending on the day of the week, the office can be quite empty. Yeah, that we've I've heard that a lot as well. People are starting to turn their out of offices into in offices, if that makes sense. So, you know, like definitely meet up while I'm there and that sort of thing. So definitely interesting times. Um, speaking of which, professionally or personally, um, what's been your biggest learning over the last two or three years? Uh, so I think personally, uh, definitely the pandemic has been a, a time for a reassessment. Uh, and one of the things that... Uh, I really got reminded of during the pandemic was uh, the importance of family. Um, my husband also switched to working from home full time uh, when COVID hit. So we're both uh, spending our entire days together. And it was really nice to be reminded how great it is to, to be spending a lot of time with family. Uh, professionally, um, one thing that I really learned over the last couple of years has really been the importance of real-time data. Um, when the pandemic started, there was huge demand for knowing what's happening in the world and in the economy. Um, and a lot of people uh, from uh, from policymakers to, to the media have turned their attention to uh, all kinds of new and, and timely sources of data. Uh, and indeed, we've contributed uh, trends in job postings, job volumes as a very timely indicator of what's happening in the labor market. But uh, people have started to look at all other kinds of uh, data from open table bookings to mobility data from uh, Google and Apple to all kinds of uh, novel uh, public health data, road traffic, uh, port traffic, which gives you an idea of the movement of goods. And um, statistical agencies have done uh, huge amounts of work on tapping into these data sources, turning them into all kinds of dashboards that tell us what's going on with the economy. And I think um, that's a really useful complement for all the other uh, official, more representative data sources like uh, surveys, for instance, which uh, are really, really useful and really important, but can be a bit slower moving. 
Um, interesting. We're going to be jumping around a lot, I sense, um, on, on this sort of thing, because it, it does sort of move around when you're talking economics and job hunting. Um, you, you jumped to a question I had um, in the future, sort of talking about um, data points and indices and that sort of thing. Obviously, you have a lot of data from Indeed, and you mentioned some of the indicators that you're sort of like seeing coming out um, recently that people are sort of looking at. Are there any that surprised you that sort of are giving good signal that you, you thought well, you'd never look at? Um, we do have a lot of data. So we look at uh, the activity of employers and recruiters, which give us an idea of the demand side of the labor market. And we also look at the activity of job seekers. So, um, you know, what kinds of keywords people are typing into the site when they search for a job, uh, what kinds of jobs do they end up clicking on or applying to. And I think one of the things that I have found surprising recently has been on the job seeker side and specifically turning again to the topic of remote work, what we're seeing is that uh, people's searches for remote jobs or work from home opportunities um, actually uh, have been persistently high. So even as the pandemic has ebbed and as you know, public health restrictions have eased all over the world, people still keep searching for uh, remote jobs at much higher rates than they did before the pandemic and, and even at higher rates than when the pandemic began. So interest in working from home seems to be uh, pretty live and pretty persistent. And, and I would uh, venture to use uh, the word uh, permanent. I, I think it could really be a more permanent feature of the labor market in the future. Mm. Do you have any data about how many people are actually working remote? I see the number 20 through to 80%. And it, obviously, it's industry specific. It is not a fair, um, what do you call it, uh, playing field, though. For example, you can't have um, bin men uh, working remotely. It just doesn't work. You know, there, there's a great swathe of people where, again, this sort of injustice of how the world of work sort of comes about. Any data on remote work or numbers of people or anything like that? I, I, I haven't been able to find one that I would trust. <laughs> Uh, well, there are official statistics on this. Uh, labor force surveys ask people whether they work from home or not, uh, you know, either occasionally or permanently. And, you know, I think between a fifth and a third is a good estimate, depending on the country. In some countries, that's uh, that's a bit lower. So, for instance, we see that in France, actually, remote working hasn't perhaps caught on as much as it did in the UK or, uh, or in the US. Um, and a lot of the people who report working remotely, you know, only work from home part of the week. So it's not necessarily that they're 100% uh, remote. Um, but yeah, you highlight correctly that this is um, something that is very unequal. Uh, there are certainly jobs that cannot be done from home. Uh, as you said, binmen uh, are one example. You know, lots of people um, have jobs that involve uh, moving or building things or dealing with customers or with patients in person and, and they cannot work from home. And that's actually... The majority of the workforce in you know in most developed economies uh, those are people who cannot work from home um so this kind of newfound love for remote working this flexibility is something that certainly isn't available for everyone uh what i would say though is that uh, one thing that we see on the job search side is that people uh not only search for remote work but they also use other keywords related to other flexible forms of working. So things like flexible schedules, for instance. And people who search for those kinds of keywords related to flexibility then end up clicking on jobs in a wide range of sectors from hospitality to education. So a lot of sectors were traditionally, you know, you, you wouldn't have thought that there would be any flexibility and yet people do want to take advantage of that uh, ability maybe to to kind of manage their schedules around personal or, or family commitments. Interesting. And they're doing it at nine o'clock in the morning on Mondays. Is that right? <laughs> um, that is right. So we have published some, some stats on when people search for jobs. Um, and we have found that peak job search time during the week tends to be uh, Monday morning. Um, people then kind of keep on searching on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and then uh, it tails off and, and people really don't uh, tend to search as much or on weekends or on holidays. Um, and I'm glad you highlighted this, uh, this fun fact because I, I think actually it's quite important, not necessarily because of the practical implications for recruitment, uh, certainly on the practical side, you know, if, if you know that people search most actively on Monday mornings, then you might want 
to post your jobs first thing on Monday morning so that it's nice and fresh online when, when people start searching rather than posting it on a Thursday or a Friday. Uh, but I think actually this, uh, this bit about people searching on Mondays is insightful because it means that people search uh, during, uh, during work. And uh, I think it really highlights uh, how important it is for uh, companies, for businesses to create great jobs. Because if you, know, if you know that your workers are coming in after a weekend you know, that maybe they spent with family or they spent doing some fun stuff uh, and not thinking about work, and then they come in and the first thing they do is search for another job, then you've got a retention problem. And I think what you want is, is you want your employees to come in and uh, enjoy their job and, and do a good job at their job rather than uh, trying to think about uh, switching somewhere else. Um, and especially in today's very tight labor market where hiring is so challenging, I think uh, that highlights the importance of retaining your employees, retaining talent. Yeah, it's an interesting point, isn't it? I've, I've heard a lot of people sort of say like about motivation and we've talked about um, issues surrounding happiness at work um, with mm -hmm. some people like Gretchen Rubin earlier on in the series. When I, when I read that stat, I just went, oh, God, that's really quite depressing that people sort of come in and obviously they're using the company's time or misusing the company's time to search for jobs. So that's one thing which I'm sure is going to cause a lot more people to think about surveillance technology. And please don't, employees out there, it's just a bad thing. Um, but it, it does sort of beg the, the, the thing of, number one, um, is Monday just the day that gets picked on? Or should businesses be using Monday in a different sort of way? Or should they just start at midday? Um, or switch to a four-day working week, which is also an idea that's been thrown around quite a lot. And, yep. you know, there are a lot of uh, studies that have been done or studies that are ongoing uh, that try to measure, you know, uh, satisfaction and motivation and productivity if you have a four-day working week. Uh, I mean, I suspect that, uh, you know, even if people had Monday off and, and did all, all their work from Tuesday to Friday, then... Uh, for a lot of workers and a lot of companies that peak job search day might just shift to Tuesday. So I think it's really not necessarily about whether you start at 9 a.m. on Monday or whether you start at noon on Monday. It's really about uh, the features of jobs and, and making jobs great mm. uh, for employees. Yeah, it, it definitely seems like a lot of people, you know, understand that the nine to five is there. And a lot of um, senior people at jobs either don't have that sort of visibility that what they're creating actually doesn't, you know, it might be making the money, but it's not working for people. Um, and that's certainly a message I've, I've heard over this season. It's, um, it's one of those areas where I think it's hard to get data to sort of prove because it's a little bit cultural. It's, you know, sim uh, symptomatic of bad management, but also um, a, a sign of the times, isn't it? A lot of people are probably getting headhunted or told to, you know, that they can get 10 grand if they just leave and that sort of stuff. It's an interesting mm -hmm. market out there. Let's just go up high for a second and talk about the world in general. What's happening with the job market in, in main sort of areas like Europe, let's say UK specifically, and the US? The job market in the UK, in the EU, and in the US is uh, incredibly tight right now. There are lots and lots of job vacancies. Uh, job vacancies started rising steadily about a year ago as the world was recovering from the pandemic. Uh, there are huge hiring needs across all sectors. And basically in most rich countries right now, uh, job vacancies are at or near record highs. Um, and so lots of people have been getting hired, but uh, employers' appetite for staff is almost insatiable uh, right now. And uh, so that means uh, it's a really good time to look for a job and try to you know, either enter the, the jobs market or try to switch uh, for a better job. Uh, but conversely, it's a really difficult time for recruitment. Uh, it's really hard to find uh, good candidates um, and a lot of employers are struggling. Um, I think one, uh, uh, so so kind of one trend that that is happening is that the global economy uh, does appear to be going into a bit of a slowdown. Uh, so that's that's not good news overall for society and for the economy in general. But it could be a bit of a respite on the recruitment front. Uh, there could be you know slightly more candidates and, and slightly fewer competing job vacancies. Um, but uh, at the same time, you know, unemployment is, is quite low across the, the rich world and uh, it seems like the recruitment challenges are here to stay. Um, when it comes to um, job hunting, um, 
how has the pandemic sort of changed job hunting? Obviously, we're, I don't know, was it the same or we didn't know that people were logging on at 9am on Mondays? Or is it sort of more fundamental that just people have taken that sort of moment of pause and gone, this is rubbish, I need to do something different? Um, we did know that people were logging in and, and searching for jobs on Monday mornings. So that's something that uh, was already a pattern before the pandemic and it persists now. Uh, there is some uh, anecdotal evidence right now that actually it's a lot easier to interview for another job when you're working from home. So that could be one reason why, mm -hmm. uh, you know, one thing driving a higher job switching rates among, you know, white collar professional workers. Um, but uh, job search has certainly changed in many ways uh, throughout the pandemic. Um, uh, I would sort of group those changes into two buckets. Uh, one are changes which were temporary and really driven by, by COVID and, and the resulting restrictions. And the other bucket are changes which are likely to be a bit more persistent um, that have been either created or accelerated by the pandemic. So in terms of the first bucket, in terms of some temporary changes during the pandemic, we definitely saw huge swings in job search. Um, uh, you know, many people just really stopped searching for a job when the pandemic started because there really weren't a lot of opportunities. There were lots of health risks. Um, and many people, those who could, you know, try to hold on to the jobs that they already had. At the same time, many people found themselves out of a job because they were, you know, for instance, in a sector that's completely shut down. And so we saw a huge increase uh, or shift in job search towards the essential jobs. So things like food retail, for instance, we saw people both in the UK and in the US very actively searching for jobs in supermarkets uh, and grocery stores. Um, some of these changes really uh, went away as, as things reopened and as, as recovery began. Um, but it's kind of a reminder of, um, you know, how uh, important all those essential jobs uh, were. And, and one of the, the ways in which they were important is that they actually these sectors continued to hire people even in the depths of the pandemic. Um, you know, they were really kind of supporting the, the stay-at-home economy. Um, and in terms of trends in job search that have uh, changed um, sort of more persistently, um, I would definitely highlight uh, two things. One is that, uh, that those searches for remote work that we talked about earlier. So, so people... Uh, looking more actively for work from home opportunities. And that really seems to persist uh, now that the pandemic is, I guess, over, almost over. Um, and the other trend that we saw was that uh, we saw um, an increase in broad uh, job search. So uh, people, for instance, going onto a job site and uh, looking for all jobs in a given location or um, looking at, um, you know, typing in keywords like all jobs, you know, all vacancies, any job. Um, and that has uh, particularly been um, the case in weaker labor markets. So those, you know, that haven't been recovering uh, as rapidly as others. Uh, so we really see, uh, you know, kind of the economic environment uh, affecting how people search for a job and what kinds of jobs they look for. Mm. I want to talk about technology specifically a little bit um, later, but it sort of follows on from one question. Um, how are you seeing people searching for jobs when it comes to sort of the new platforms that have sprung up? And I'm talking about TikTok, WhatsApp, Discord, to name a few. Um, how are they changing things? Do different generations search differently based on the platforms they grew up with? Or is it all sort of converging and they rely on the big platforms? Um most people still come to the big platforms. Um, I think the advantage of a big platform is that uh, it aggregates almost all jobs which are out there. So you can go to a single place and uh, and browse for you know as many jobs as possible rather than having to jump from one platform to the next. Uh, this behavior of, of really having to go to 10 different sites when you're looking for a job is uh, really something from the late 90s, which is where, when online job boards uh, started springing up uh, across the world. Um, but I think one, one way in which um, those different platforms are changing job search is that uh, people are much more informed about what it's like to work in different jobs and at different companies. Um, recently, we've seen many people posting, you know, TikTok videos or Twitter threads about, you know, how they've quit the job that they didn't like, for instance. Mm. And people are really aren't shy about posting online reviews of companies. Uh, and in fact, 
you know, sites like Indeed or our sister company Glassdoor have entire sections of the website that collects uh, company reviews and, and, and people's feedback. And um, when people search for a job these days, they, they really do check out those pages and, and they are really influenced by what they see on them. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like Google reviews. It's, uh, it's honest feedback. You know, you sometimes you trust uh, anonymous uh, feedback from someone online more than mm. what uh, the company might tell you directly. But at the same time, those are also great, um, uh, great, great ways for companies to, 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 to advertise. You know, companies really aren't shy about talking their employee experience, about how their onboarding looks like, uh, the benefits that they provide to employees, what the atmosphere is like. So I think that, that uh, those, those new platforms and networks have really changed a job search in that uh, direction. Um, and as you say, we can talk about technology a bit later and how technology is changing that job search as well. Mm, it's funny you mentioned onboarding and sort of like once you've got the job um, processes, I've still not seen many companies publish publicly what they do when they onboard people. And I think that for a lot of people would help them like understand what culture it is and that sort of thing long before the, the, the job is offered to them and sort of honestly make people want the job even more, I think, because you sort of know a bit more about it. But there are no companies out there that seem to do it well. It's either like we're going to throw swag at you, um, which you'll never wear, use or want, um, or we don't do anything. And I've never seen very many people do it well. Um, there's been a couple, but not 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 as many as you think or want. Um Let's uh, talk or let's let's round off job hunting, as it were, uh, for a little bit. But tell me what's worrying you right now about um, the data you're seeing about job, people job hunting. Um, one thing that is worrying me is that in some countries like the UK and the US, uh, there are still a lot of people who are staying on the sidelines and not searching for a job. Um, basically, we've seen. Uh, an increase in the proportion of people who are of working age uh, who have withdrawn from the job market. Either they retired early or they just simply aren't working uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, and just given the extent of the recruitment challenge that we're facing, I think it would be really great if those people did come back to the labor market. Uh, in the UK specifically, some of the big reasons for inactivity or, or for staying outside of the labor force uh, are things like long-term ill health. Um, and it's not clear whether that's long COVID or perhaps other health problems that uh, went uncured because of COVID. Uh, but that is one of those reasons. And I think that's something that mm -hmm. is worth taking a closer look at. Um, and, you know, we really need those people. So any employers who are uh, you know, struggling to to hire should really take a look at older workers and how to make jobs attractive to the, to those workers. Uh, the Office for National Statistics in the UK has actually done some really great surveys of uh, people who are aged between fifty and sixty four, uh, which is kind of the the top of what's. Uh, typically defined in statistics as working age, although the, the, the high point is, is, is a bit low. Um, and they found that, you know, they asked people why or what, what, what would make them go back to the workforce. Um, and the top reason uh, was the right job. Um, which sounds a little vague, uh, but I think what it means is, you know, a job that is flexible enough and that, you know, pays well enough and has good enough working conditions uh, to, you know, to actually make it attractive. Um, so, uh, just to summarize, th those workers who are staying outside of the labor market are a bit of a worry. Uh, we are seeing some encouraging signs in the latest data, both in the U.S., where we're seeing an increasing number of people unretire. Um, I didn't know that was a word, but but apparently that exists. You know, you 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 retired and then you you cancel that retirement, go back to work. Um, and in the U.K., we've also seen a rise in flows from inactivity to employment. So uh, hopefully, these are some encouraging signs. I mean, is it do, do, like I feel like when you've done 64 years of work that you should be able to retire and not be begged back into the thing or not have economic hardship sort of like force you back into the workforce. <laughs> I, th I I agree. I think those numbers are low that you quoted. I think we're going to be working, you know, if we're living into our 80s, I think a lot of people are going to be working a lot longer. Um, how should employers be thinking about that when it comes to sort of jobs? Because obviously we're all having more jobs. Um, you know, there's no job for life and we've got different generations um in in the workplace which have different expectations how do you give advice to employers or what what advice would you give to employers who are hiring different generations uh gosh that's a that's a difficult question you know i think that's that's a problem that has 
existed forever, right? You know, we've always had different generations working together. Mm. Um, and uh, when you survey young people about uh, their ideal job, you always get, you know, some hip jobs coming up top, like, you know, graphic designer or, you know, BBC uh, TV journalist or something like that. But then, you know, the majority of, of young people enter, you know, the kind of the, the standard or the typical uh, careers. Um, and, um, you know, I think uh, the, the more general point is that employers really need to think about uh, the expectations of the workforce, regardless of the age distribution of that workforce. Um, so, you know, trying to find out what what people want, you know, do they want some kind of flexibility in, in their schedules? Uh, do they want the ability to work remotely uh, for office jobs? Uh, you know, understanding what uh, the competition is doing in terms of compensation uh, and the working environment, uh, just trying to gather as much intelligence as possible. Um, just to make jobs as attractive as possible uh, to people. I think that's the issue, isn't it, with a lot of jobs? It's it's everyone's trying to make them attractive, but very few sort of go. Actually, you're going to be sat in the front of a computer working with a spreadsheet. Are you okay with that? And I think there needs to be almost a realism that comes to it. Not sure. all jobs are sexy and fun and that sort of stuff. Not even a graphic design job, which I thought was the sexiest and fun job because it was <laughs> super creative and that sort of stuff. When uh, I was I, I had it in my head, and when you actually talk to them, they go, "It's horrific," you know, having clients sort of like throw things at you and that sort of stuff. I, um, I love yeah, the. No, I Mm, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that's why, you know, transparency is really important. And it starts at the point of writing a job description. You really want to describe the, the tasks that the candidate, that the worker will be doing accurately. Uh, but also, you know, a lot of companies have been creating, uh, you know, videos and uh, interviews with people and kind of making as much information as possible available to candidates. Um, and of course, you know, you want that information to be as honest as possible. So you don't want to sort of oversell and then, you know, someone joins and finds out, you know, none of that was true. You want you want to really give an accurate picture of the job in, in all of your sort of employer branding materials and, and advertising that you do. Mm. Um, it's different over here. In America, you have to put, um, or the other way around, I forget which way it is now, but you have to put um, a price, a price, sorry, a salary bracket on, um, uh, what do you call it, job applications. Oh, is that over here or there? I always get it mixed up. It's over there, isn't it? Um, so in the US, uh, some of the states have recently introduced uh, legislation to, yeah. to require salary ranges in uh, in job ads. Uh, Colorado is one example. Uh, New York, New York will be doing that as well. New York City. Mm. Um, in the UK, actually, a fairly high share of uh, job ads have salary information. It's about half, yeah. uh, which is higher than uh, in most of Europe. Um, so that transparency is coming. Um, and I think that's a good thing. You know, it's uh, the salary range is one of the most basic information, pieces of information about the job. Um, I think it's efficient for employers to disclose how much they're going to pay because then they will only get the applications uh, of people who are interested in that range and, and they won't waste anyone's time. So I think as an economist, I always try to think about market efficiency. And uh, in general, I think uh, transparency improves efficiency and improves the matching of people to jobs. Mm. Um, speaking of matching, let's talk about CVs for a bit. Um, what are the trends sort of happening there? There's obviously a lot of tech that's helping people recreate CVs based on keyword analysis and, you know, doing all that. But what's the correct strategy when you are job hunting? Obviously, you've got sites like Indeed, which you can use and sort of, you know, really refine things down. But when, as you said earlier, everyone's got every, every job, it must come down to either search strings you're using or um, how you've described yourself, right? Uh, yeah, so I think CVs are, are really important and they will continue to be important. Um, you know, a lot of uh, companies are using um, automated tools to sift through CVs. Um, and I think we've all read about various horror stories of, you know, AI algorithms rejecting candidates because of some spurious rules that have nothing to do with the job. And I think we... Um, you know, we have to be really cautious with those tools. But what 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 you know the existence of these tools means for candidates is that they need to make their CV as clear as possible, use uh, short sentences, use the types of phrases that uh, they find in job adverts uh, to try to get a match. Uh, but I think this um, this kind of excessive or, or, or too rapid automation of uh, CV analysis is uh, is a danger, and and it's probably not something that 
we should really dive into without first, uh, you know, trying to improve all those all those kinds of algorithms. Because, you know, I think I think it's really challenging to have uh, an algorithm match people to jobs uh, without really trying to understand what the candidate really wants and what the job entails. Um, and it's really hard both to extract uh, the right set of skills from a job description and to really extract the right set of skills and interests from a candidate's CV. So just to give you an example, you know, if someone, say, is working in the hotel industry and they want to uh, switch into working in events, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of a, a dumb algorithm might always be matching them to hotel jobs because yeah. that's the experience that they have on their CV, whereas uh, that person might actually want to be trying to make a switch to something else. So I think... Um, you know, any kind of technology that matches people to jobs really has to put the job seeker front and center uh, of that whole process. It, it sort of, it turns it into a bit of a game. That was how a friend described it to me. And they said, um, it's really interesting because I'm reading all this stuff and saying, you've got to change your CV for every time you um, go in. And she goes, there's just got to be a better way. It feels like I'm changing who I am for every job when in mm -hmm. fact, it's sort of like the job needs to sort of change for who I am. How would you agree with that? Do you think that, you know, the job is the job, obviously, you can't sort of change it, but the company and the sort of how they sell it to you feels a bit of a disjointed or broken uh, procedure for a lot. It feels like people are using the, um, what do you call it, automation tools, because they have such an influx of people when in fact, surely that's a good thing. And you want to look through all of them yourself. Obviously, it takes time, but you can do cursory glances at things and, you know, get rid of stuff yourself. Does it just show up that we have bad hiring practices versus uh, uh, when misusing AI? Um, I think there's a lot of room for hiring practices to improve. Um, and I think there are some uh, very simple but powerful ways in which technology can improve the process without going down that rabbit hole of, um, you know, AI just deciding everything and being a black box um, a a a and so that you don't know what, what actually happened and what criteria they used. Um, and one one other issue with with AI, which which I should have mentioned earlier, is that you know sometimes these algorithms learn from the behavior of humans, and so you might have a situation where uh, you know some machine learning algorithm always recommends candidates who are white males because they're just replicating you know what people had done at this particular company before yeah. the existence of AI. Um, but you know in certain jobs. Um, the the whole process from application to the to interview uh, is really quite simple and can be automated quite easily with the candidate in the driving seat. So, for instance, imagine that you have a health system that wants to hire uh, ten thousand nurses. So typically, you know, they might receive 20,000 applications and uh, someone or a team of people would have to look through all those CVs, decide who has the right qualifications and, and experience and lives in the right areas, and then start scheduling interviews for, for you know, say the 10,000 people, uh, which is a very long and complicated process. Whereas actually probably the decision whether to invite someone to interview or not is just based on one, do they have the right qualifications or licenses, two, you know, do they have the right experiences as an oncology nurse or ER nurse or, or whatever is necessary? And three, do they live in the right place where there is a job available or are they willing to relocate? And so one way in which this whole process is now changing due to technology is that now uh, these candidates can just go online. They answer these three simple questions themselves. They say, yes, I have the right license. Yes, I, I have this experience. I live in the right place. And, you know, they can book an interview tomorrow uh, and be in front of a live interviewer. And that saves a lot of time. The candidate doesn't have to wait endlessly, perhaps never to hear back. And the recruiter doesn't have to sit through thousands of CVs. So, it you know, it's a simple technology that has nothing to do with AI, but yet, you know, puts people um, in front of an interviewer at a time, you know, that's convenient for them. And all the interviewer has to do is just show up that day and have a full roster of uh, qualified candidates. Um, and that also can remove certain biases, at least from the initial selection process. So, you know, as long as someone's qualified, they get an interview. And of course, uh, biases, whether conscious or unconscious, can still uh, uh, rear their ugly head later in the process, but at least um, you're giving all qualified candidates a chance. Mm. Do you think we'll see technologies that sort of um, remove um, the candidate, if that makes sense? So, for example, you can't see what they look like or sound like. Do you think that's useful to sort of remove bias or is that a step too far? 
Uh, I think there are certainly technologies that are useful, like uh, say removing the candidate's name or picture in those countries where uh, it's still standard to include your uh, photograph on a mm. CV. Um, I think that can be useful because you know even if people uh, think they aren't biased, they might be in certain ways. Um, I think it would be it would be quite hard. Um, not to know anything about the candidate because at some point, you know, if you sort of distort their voice or uh, or something like that, you know, maybe you, you're not actually getting the right interview experience. But um, I think uh, technology is getting closer and closer to be able to match or to at least make suggestions to people um, of jobs based on their skills and interests as closely as possible. But I would just highlight that, you know, it's it's not all about skills. It's also about interests. And that's really important uh, when suggestions or recommendations or matches are made uh, for candidates. Mm. So, you know, fast forward 10, 15 years, what does the future for job hunting hold? Um, I, I guess we should start with businesses. Is it just more automation and more automation or or does it get sexier than that? <laughs> um, well, you know, at some level, businesses, you know, have jobs that they need to fill and they need uh, qualified people um, in those roles. Um, I think uh the, when you think about the longer term and some trends that we see in the labor market, uh, certainly uh, one of the trends that uh, are a concern for recruitment is the aging population. Uh, we need more and more jobs in areas like health and social care uh, that involve taking care of that aging population. Uh, and low birth rate means there may be fewer and fewer younger people entering uh, the workforce. Uh, so I think um, the the attention of, of a lot of businesses kind of over the long term will uh, switch from attraction to retention. Uh, retention is, is really key. Um, and I think that's one of the things that uh, businesses should focus on. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, automation and, and technology are definitely a, a key trend, uh, you know, just making the whole process easier um, because we're kind of at a phase in the development of recruitment technology where, you know, it's easy to see a situation where you you want to hire one person, you you're, you post your job online and you get 10,000 applications for that one role and you really need technology to actually help you whittle that down. The big question is, you know, how do you do that in a way that's fair and effective? Mm. Uh, what's the reality of how many um, applicants that the average job gets at the moment? Most people wouldn't get 10,000, would it? But I assume it's an, an un, not unhuman or a, uh, an, a large enough number to make it sort of cumbersome for a human. There you go. God, sorry, eight million words. <laughs> <laughs> it can be cumbersome. It really depends on the type of job and, and where it's located. Um, so it's really hard to say. There, there are certainly some sectors like IT or healthcare that um, have struggled to attract a lot, you know, enough candidates uh, in in most of the developed economies uh, for many years, and so they don't tend to get that many applications. Uh, that said, we advertised a data science position on my team uh, recently, uh, based here in the UK, and we did get about two hundred applications. So, the the range is very wide. See, I think 200 is perfectly siftable, you know, and that sort of stuff. You have to make some choices, don't you? And obviously make those publish and that sort of thing. 10,000 is a lot, but I, I, I would be interested to know what percentage of people had to sift that many or whether it's just, um, you know, companies like Meta or Snap and those sorts of people. It'd be interesting, but yeah. Well, um, a, you know, employers like the NHS, for instance, you know, it's, or yeah. Tesco, you know, huge organizations that have huge recruitment teams and lots of people spending a lot of time sifting through CVs and uh, scheduling interviews. And I think that's where technology can really help. Yeah. I mean, I have no problem with the NHS having more staff, so I'm just literally hire anyone you can at the moment. It <laughs> seems like that's one company or organization that needs no help with recruitment, in fact, other than to get more people in. Um, what, uh, so we're all, we mentioned earlier, we're living longer, we're working longer. What advice do you have for those on, who are on the senior side of life when it comes to job hunting? How do they make sure they get a fair shake? Um, well, I, you know, I think um, uh, uh, that's a difficult question. You know, I think people who, who are older, who have more experience, um, certainly, um, have to keep up with all these, all the technology and all the tools that are available for job search. So I think, you know, I think that's almost a given uh, that, you know, most job search now happens online. And so, uh, you know, I can 
easily see where you know maybe people who have worked uh, in a, in a job for a very long time and and haven't had to search for a new job while this whole technological revolution was taking place. Uh, would really need to update uh, their skills on that front. So, you know, have a have a CV that you upload online and, and, and using online job search tools and uh, exploring jobs and exploring companies, you know, using online reviews um, and, and all these different platforms. I think that's uh, definitely one piece of advice. Mm. And let's flip it the other side. People who are just entering the, um, the workplace and the workforce can't really say the workplace anymore. Can you? It seems old fashioned to say that. <laughs> um, when you, when you have younger um, demographics, uh, they have different needs, you know, talking to them. I think somebody said it earlier on the season, talking to them about a 401k is like talking to them about a mythical event that's never going to happen yeah. in their lives or that's so far away that you're just going to depress them and make them think that you're an old company and that sort of stuff. Do you do you ever sort of see a day or are the trends sort of telling you that this sort of day is coming where people almost have what they want for perk packages listed on, say, um, in uh, LinkedIn or something like that? Um, and people can go, oh, right, he's interested in that. We'll give him package, you know, this package based mm -hmm. on it rather than what we've got. Is that sort of coming? Is that realistic or do you think that's in the future? Um. Well, you know, uh, people have always uh, had the ability to negotiate uh, their package. So that really depends on kind of their negotiating position, their bargaining position and what job they're applying to and, and how much the company is, is willing to uh, give them. Um, I think perks are a really interesting uh, question because uh, we have seen the nature of perks that companies offer change throughout the pandemic. Um, it used to be that, mm. uh, you know, tech companies especially, but, you know, kind of companies that had professional jobs would offer things like free beer and free food and happy hours and things like that. And that has really gone down. But um, what has risen instead are perks related to health and well-being. So things like um, free exercise classes or, you know, free well-being apps, uh, as well as a subsidized transport, which I think is really interesting in this uh, time of very high energy prices. So the perks are always changing. But uh, going back to your original question on, on young people, uh, I think what's what's really important for people who are entering the labor market for the first time is um, an opportunity to get training and to learn. Um, and one positive trend that we've actually seen recently in the UK specifically is that the share of employees who get on the job training has risen uh, to a, a much higher level than what we had seen in the previous five to 10 years. So it's uh, perhaps a good sign that employers in this difficult hiring environment are offering training. And I think that's something that's really good, especially uh, for young people. Yeah, definitely. That that's I'm very much uh, in favour of that. And I hope uh, people are enjoying that training as well. Um, must be hard as well doing it remotely. I think for a lot of people, um, you know, especially if they've not met people, um, you know, that's always going to be a challenge. And doing it engagingly mm -hmm. is always always a challenge as well. Um, I'm interviewing uh, Hundo Careers uh, on the next and final episode. They're helping young people build careers and new business models in the metaverse. Very exciting company. What's your take on the metaverse and future sort of world of work? Do you think we'll be doing job interviews with animal avatars? Uh, or is that is that the ultimate anti-bias technique or, or maybe the biggest one, you know, that you're not taking it seriously? How, how do you think the metaverse is going to impact the world of work? Um, I have no idea. Honestly, so uh, I'm definitely going to listen to your next episodes to try to find out. <laughs> it's a really interesting company. She's um, she's doing a lot. And she's taking it from another sort of angle, which I'm always fascinated by. Um, everything I've seen um, thus far from metaverse companies or multiverse companies, whatever uh, you choose, tells me two things. Number one, the big boys are going to be playing uh, um, well, big people are going to be uh, playing in their sandboxes and interoperability is going to be the biggest issue, i.e. you're going to have to have multiple accounts and multiple things or one account and you don't touch the others, which is a sad world that we're going to live in because the potential for it is quite big. I also think the potential for training is absolutely huge, like we were just talking about, but everyone seems to be obsessed with putting me in an office, which I've just tried to escape for three years. Like, why mm -hmm. would you put four walls when you could, like, have a cloud community of people, you know, that are just floating on clouds and talking to people? 
people and that sort of stuff. It, it's fascinating. I think the biggest um, people who are going to be able to charge massive amounts of money soon are the designers of metaverse worlds because they will need the most imaginative people to come up with new places that inspire delight and sort of help people. But it'd be quite interesting as well if you could sort of take people into a metaverse space that they would see on their first day and that sort of stuff. I think Accenture uh, actually just said that all of their people on their first day will will be in the metaverse, which, you know, mm -hmm. is a PR stunt, but it's, you know, interesting sort of thought fodder. But yeah. Um, right. Okay, doke. Let's um, end with Desert Island tweets. Um, that's the part of Mouthwash where the guest picks a tweet or two that's changed their mind or way of thinking in some way. So if you turn your attention to the nest, uh, if you're listening live, that's a bit at the top. You'll be able to see the new tweet that's up there. Uh, and it is from Malala. Uh, if you want to follow her, it's at Malala, M-A-L-A-L-A. -A -A. And it says, so excited to go to Oxford. Well done to all A-level students. The hardest year. Best wishes for life ahead. And then it's obviously got her status that she um, graduated. So, yeah. Uh, Pavel, why did you pick this one? Um, I picked this one because... Um... Malala studied PP and at Oxford, and for those uh, who don't know, that's uh, philosophy, politics, and economics. And um, I used to teach PPE students uh, while I was while I was doing a P my PhD at Oxford. Um, I didn't get to teach uh, Malala, but my uh, PhD advisor interviewed her to get into Oxford and, and was very impressed. And I think um, that I picked that tweet because it really opened my eyes to the wide range of backgrounds of the students that uh, come into the program and, uh, you know, the types of experiences that they can really bring into such a, uh, such a difficult, but also such a diverse program. Um, and uh, definitely it's uh, kind of made me think that, uh, you know, when, when, when you can get to a program like that, um, uh, you know, after having gone through what uh, Malala had gone through, then that's uh, that's really kind of positive and optimistic message. Yeah, a very a very cool one, a very cool one. Um, okay, look, that is a wrap on another episode of season four. My thanks to Dr. Power Adjan for uh, deep diving the future of work, making hunting for jobs even clearer. Uh, follow him on Twitter, and if you find out more, uh, head over to Indeed over at Indeed.com. Um, any final uh, words of advice for listeners, Dr. Pavel? Uh, maybe the last thing I would say is that we publish our research on the labor market on Indeed Hiring Lab's uh, blog, and the address is hiringlab, one word, dot org. So if anyone's interested, uh, please feel free to check that out. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, okay, the final episode of Mouthwash Season 4 goes to Esther O'Callaghan, OBE and founder of Hundo Careers, as we were just talking about, the company that's training young people for the metaverse and the business opportunities that it's going to present to the world. Uh, I'm going to be attempting to uh, hold my own up, uh, where she is obviously the expert. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll be trying to keep her honest, but also getting the real sort of excitement that I think a lot of people have, and I've yet to got about it, and that's the thing. Uh, don't miss a minute. Head over to mouthwash.norby.live and you'll get a text so you never miss it. Uh, Mouthwash is produced by Suze and the big team at Te Big Tech Media. Use them for all your audio needs. As always, everything Mouthwash, even the text alerts, can be found over at mouthwashshow.com. I'm a firm believer you don't remember the days, you remember the moments, and I hope this has been one for you. I'm Paul Armstrong, this is Mouthwash. Listening again soon for more chess chat that leaves you more confident. Thanks for listening to Mouthwash. Please share it in a network you trust and check out our sponsors. Season 4 of Mouthwash was sponsored by Workplace by Meta. The easy-to-use features at Workplace help people work together in new ways. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. That's workplace.com forward slash human. Have a great day.